0: Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez Packham. Let's get on with the show. If you are just tuning in and you're new to the show, I'll just give you a quick introduction. The show has main episodes which follow a basic narrative chronology. They start in 1815 with Napoleon and Waterloo advancing through European and British politics, some world-changing climate events, then on to the life of the young Victoria and politics as she was growing up. You can start with this episode today without getting too lost, but I recommend you at least go back to start with Victoria's birth in episode 17. The podcast also has mini-sodes. These cover interesting topics, and don't stick to any particular period. You don't need to listen to them to follow the main narrative. If you do want to dip into one to get a feel for the podcast, I recommend Minisode 11, The History of Gin, or the Easter Special of 2018, which covered the Matchstick Girls and Annie Besant. Both of those are longtime listener favourites. I want to say a big thank you for the latest listener reviews Magpie Maggie May. Left a five-star review. Mellow and informative. Great podcast. His mellow voice is soothing to listen to on the drive home. Very informative and in-depth. Thank you. Vicky Alice, five-star. Great podcast about the Victorians. I love history podcasts, and this is one of my favourites. It's brilliantly researched, and you can tell the host really knows his stuff. Thanks, Chris, for this amazing series. Thank you both, it's really kind of you, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. This is our last politics episode, and in the last show we talked a lot about Tory politics, and they have come up during the Peterloo episode and in other places. It is sometimes tempting to look at the history of politics as this lot were bad because they resisted reform, so the other side must be good because they wanted reform. That is a very simplistic way of looking at things. Reform isn't automatically a good thing. The Tories had driven through Catholic emancipation and believed passionately in the concept of the constitutional monarchy, plus, were pushing for economic development. So don't think just because a chunk of Tories had done some nasty stuff from some points of view that the Whigs were automatically the good guys. The reality is as always in political life, was far more complicated. The Whigs, subject of today's show, represented an important strand of the political character of the period. Broadly speaking, they had started out as parliamentarians and constitutional monarchists, against the more absolutist Stuarts, so were less conservative than the Tories when it came to the Crown. They had an insanely complicated history, In the 17th and 18th centuries. Often highly anti-French. And hated free trade. The label of Whig. Was adopted by some Americans. During the colonial war for independence. Honestly. A history of the Whigs. Would give me a headache. Even if we were only talking about England. When you throw in America as well. It could be upgraded to a migraine. I would need a whole whole podcast to give you a good summary of them and this is the age of victoria not a history of british and american politics which would totally be an awesome podcast and i'd be seriously tempted to do it once we finish the age of victoria in say 15 to 20 years possibly after i did the history of coffee and the other mystery topic i almost did instead of the victorians speaking of the victorians by the 1830s The Whigs had acquired one of the great historians in English history and he added a layer of propaganda to Whig history that makes understanding them even harder. Whiggish history was a philosophy of history that said things were a march of progress towards greater liberty and constitutional government. The term is a later label though applied by historians looking back At Whig historians. And the 19th century historians who were Whigs. Would not have understood themselves in that way. By the 1820s and 1830s. The Whigs were a recognised political faction. But suffering from various crises of leadership. They were often anti-army. Viewing the army as a tool of royal tyranny. They had suffered badly. From being associated with the French Revolution. Fairly or not. This meant. They sometimes lacked military support and patronage. Many leading Whigs were terrified that the military was the thin end of the wedge that could only lead to continental-style absolute monarchism and despotism, seemingly personified by Castlereagh and Metternich. Remember them from the Congress of Vienna. A few Whigs, like Milton, wanted the abolition. Of a lot of taxes to starve the military of funds, sort of choking the snake. What they weren't was in favour of universal suffrage or radical changes to the franchise to allow the poor to vote or to give women access to the electoral system. Probably if you met the Whigs, you'd actually find it surprising that they were incredibly conservative by our modern standards and hard to nail down. On our modern political spectrum. After all. Lord Melbourne was a Whig. But he hated to even hear about the poor. He criticised Dickens for writing about them. Since that meant. That he had to actually think about them. I know the Victoria TV series. Didn't really go into that. But then they portrayed Lord Melbourne. As a Byronic hero. With the wholesome. Rufus Sewell as the lead. The reality was that Lord Melbourne was a pretty conservative aristocrat. He just happened to be a Whig. Some Whigs leaned more towards what we might call libertarianism, others towards Puritanism. They had support from a huge number of rich landowners, were still anti-Catholic, but were also very pro-Anglicanism. That means they were very pro-the Church of England. Almost inevitably, This brought them into conflict with a lot of people in Scotland who had been through this kind of butting heads over reforming Scottish institutions before, during, and after the Civil War. Remember, reform isn't always good or welcome. It doesn't make you a good guy just because you've decided something needs to change. Okay, for example, when Scotland was joining England in the 1700s, the Tories argued in favour of retaining traditional Scottish laws whilst the young Whig faction argued in favour of switching to the far harsher English criminal law. A lot of the arguing was highly technical and intensely focused on the legal professions. Since a lot of political active Tories and Whigs in Scotland were lawyers Scottish Whigs felt excluded from Tory-dominated legal advancement and from the judiciary. Scottish Tories felt the Whigs were trying to anglicise Scotland. The Scottish Whig counter-attack was that the Scottish court system was highly prejudiced against people accused of crime, especially with Scottish judges being able to pick the jury members with no right of objection by the defence. This was compounded by the problem that Scottish juries could convict on a bare majority rather than the unanimous decision even in a case with the death penalty. Scottish civil cases lacked juries and were decided by panels of judges which the Whigs argued was immoral and an affront to the English tradition of the right to trial by jury. You might note by the way that, in the modern English system, juries are not used in the vast majority of civil cases, so we would suffer a tongue lashing from the Whigs on both sides of the border. Many Scots were thoroughly sick of the perceived unfairness of the Scottish system and wholly supported reform. Other Scottish Tories fired counterblasts of their own in eighteen twenty nine Philosopher David Hume was a Tory And he launched a counter-attack Of incredible depth To remind people that Scottish laws Were fundamental to the character and circumstances of Scotland He pointed out that many features of Scottish criminal law Were superior to the English Yes, juries might be aligned to the judge's interests But overall use of the death penalty applied to fewer cases and was carried out less often also unlike in england it was banned in cases where there was only one witness quick side note did you listen to the second anniversary special on the famous murderer charles peace well the murder that he had hung for had only one witness so under the old scottish system he would have escaped the noose Hume also pointed out that in the Scottish system, the accused was given the case against them in advance, unlike in England, where they didn't know what was coming beyond the charge itself. Also, in Scottish criminal cases, the accused had counsel provided, no matter how poor they were, unlike in England, which only gave automatic legal counsel in treason cases. So there you have a famous philosopher making some really good points against the switch from Scottish to English criminal law. It was a complex issue and hints at the difficulties in the struggle for a national British identity that would carry on throughout the Victorian era. I've read a really fascinating research paper on this and you are lucky I'm not now spinning off into a six part series on all of this. I'm telling you about it firstly because it leads to the great reform bill of 1832 which was a huge deal but secondly so you can start seeing the politics and political factions of the past as being extremely complicated in the same way modern Tories differ from each other and from Labour people in the past had lots of different views as people who shared the same political label. You can't just assume that things match our neat modern political descriptions of left or right wing, progressive or conservative. The politics were very different because the times were very different. A good example is Anne Lister. You know her as the clever, driven lesbian from the excellent Gentleman Jack TV series on the BBC. You know she's not interested in conforming to traditional gender roles and she's determined to be her own woman to succeed in business and living according to her own values including being a lesbian a lot of modern people would instinctively assume this means she was left wing and the Whigs were pro-reform so therefore left wing which meant she had to be a Whig but that's not the reality at all That's taking a modern view and hitting the square peg of the past as hard as possible with a hammer to fit into a round hole. Anne was very much a Tory, with firm views on a rigid social structure, people respecting their betters, and the importance of rich old families or landowners controlling parliament. She just happened to want to be one of those rich families. Broadly speaking the Tories were the reason why reforms often took so long but it doesn't mean that all reforms were done by the Whigs. As we covered in episode 22 it is somewhat ironic that the arch-conservative Duke of Wellington wrote about the Catholic Emancipation Act. Victoria initially aligned herself with the Whigs and found Sir Robert Peel so difficult at first. In the background we've also seen Sir John Conroy playing power politics He must have felt he was doing so successfully But in the long run he looked like a one trick pony Lord Melbourne would deal with him easily in future As would Sir Robert Peel It clearly never occurred to Conroy That humanity, love and display of duty Would have won him more friends and political influence In the long run it would have meant giving up any thought of the regency, but he might well have got more titles and more wealth that way. Still, the early influence on Victoria was to encourage her to be a partisan monarch. This wasn't really that unusual at the time. After all, a lot of kings and queens throughout English history played favourites, but it is very different how Victoria would behave in her later reign. Conroy and the Duchess of Kent, Victoria's mother, were just warming up at this point. As I covered in episode 20, when George IV died in 1830, he was succeeded by his brother, William the Duke of Clarence, and became William IV, known as the Sailor King. Convention held that there was a general election when there was a new monarch, and Wellington's Tories lost a lot of parliamentary seats. William IV, was more liberal than George IV. But not by much. He was much more down to earth in his own way. Think perhaps of Brian Blessed in Flash Gordon. Loud, red-faced and full of life. He certainly wasn't going to drive a programme of modernisation or engage in subtle politics. He had at least supported the Catholic Emancipation Bill. He would also help ensure the passing The Great Reform Bill of 1832 This bill, which would become an act Aimed to get rid of the old, corrupt, rotten boroughs Where MPs could be elected By one or more landowners Amongst other things A defeat in Parliament brought down Wellington's government Leading to the Whigs under Lord Grey taking power They tried to pass the bill, but failed They demanded the King Hold another general election He reluctantly dissolved Parliament The Bill then struggled in a new Parliament There was intense wrangling Over King William IV Being asked to appoint new Lords To the House of Lords To force the Bill through With Wellington being invited To form another government This didn't work And William IV found himself so unpopular His carriage was stoned and the country erupted in riots. Lord Grey was invited to form a government again, with King William swearing to appoint enough lords to force the Bill through, no matter how strong the opposition from the anti reformists and old-school Tory ultras. The King's popularity then soared. This event provoked lively arguments and riots up and down the country. It was noted and analysed in the seminal work on the English Constitution, written by Walter Bagshot in 1867 and imaginative titled The English Constitution. This is a really fascinating source. Since the English Constitution is unwritten, legal textbooks actually play an important constitutional role in clarifying the various statutes, conventions legal judgments and accepted practices that make up the unwritten constitution so bagshot's work is a really huge deal much of it is taken up with the reform act and some really really pointed warnings about the dangers letting the mass population vote instead of leaving things to what he called their betters he was scathing about the widening of the electorate and the danger Parliament would lose control of the people He felt that only wise Clear-sighted statesmen Should be coming up with policies Only limited concessions To the popular will should be made This naturally meant That the politicians had to be Of high calibre And he had no time for politicians Who promised the general population What they wanted to hear To get elected Since then there would be a bidding war for giving things to the public that the politicians couldn't deliver, and the risk of popularist demagogues. His political analysis is sharp, insightful, and in many ways at times radical. He asked readers to focus less on formal theories, like the separation of powers, and look instead at the substance of how things really operate, and who is really exercising power. Balanced against this, The reformists had a long tradition of pushing back. Fordon, for instance, the reformist, wrote, Why should only householders have votes? Does not every man who labours contribute to support the state? And is not the life, the labour, and the family of the poor cottager, or the occupier of the single room, as dear to him as they are to those who pay direct taxes? Why then? Is any man to be deprived of his rights? End quote. Not all supporters of the reform bill agreed with this approach. Some aligned more with the middle classes, others felt that suffrage should be linked to character or willingness to defend the nation. Many were concerned that corrupt landlords would gain even more power and become even more exploitative. Arguments were messy and flew through the air. Voter registration was a particular worry, as voters were required to register as taxpayers to establish their right to vote, and if they were late with the yearly registration, they would lose their vote. Amendments and counter-amendments nearly sunk the bill at various points. MPs were reluctant to reduce the number of MPs from some areas or to change constituency boundaries, what we might call redistributing in the modern US there were worries that if fixed numbers of MPs were introduced then Scotland and Ireland would not get enough of a quota of new MPs land values and tax payments in urban and rural areas varied wildly making it even harder to draw up a workable rating system especially since rural migration and balancing elections was a serious concern. Debates raged, and the bill failed in the House of Lords, despite one lord getting down on his knees and begging. As predicted, riots erupted up and down the country again, with the ultra-Tories calling for all political organisations to be declared treasonous in response. Eventually, after even more political wrangling and royal pressure, The bill was passed on third attempt after widespread rioting. The widening of the franchise would have far-reaching effects. Not all were immediately obvious. One consequence was the impact on slavery in the Caribbean. The slave-owning lobby was politically powerful before the Reform Act of 1832. However, it faced an active and powerful abolitionist movement in Britain. However, it had faced an active and powerful abolitionist movement in Britain. Expansion of the empire made the British mainland less of a captive market for the products from the slave economy. The slavers needed a political lobby to maintain power, just as their economic model became less profitable. The Great Reform Act of 1832 a lot of wealthy industrialists into the suffrage they were often abolitionists themselves or were actively seeking new markets to break the dominance of the caribbean colonial merchants and slave owners this rebalancing of power left the slave owning interests in an uphill battle against the abolition of slavery bill and it became an act in 1833 that's the thing about political reform you never know which pebble is going to help to trigger a landslide still don't think that the reform bill of 1832 created the middle class or brought in a mass universal franchise it didn't and it wasn't supposed to it was designed to widen the franchise but to keep it restricted to what would have been considered the right sort it was supposed to sweep away the worst of old corruption and bring the upper middle class into the establishment but it wasn't supposed to be more than a modest reform to the parliamentary system that many considered pretty much perfected idea of democracy as meaning universal suffrage and decisions by the majority certainly wasn't established even the founding fathers in the USA would have been horrified to extend the vote to everyone and to take major decisions by popular vote. Democracy in the late 1700s and early 1800s meant that the governing class accepted the rule of law the suffrage of property holding citizens and crucially their right to hold office. So try not to think of the movement To democracy as an inevitable struggle, championed by people everywhere, and opposed by an evil conservative elite. Instead, try and make the mental leap to see these reforms as part of an incremental process, where the newly prosperous not only got a say in decisions, but were co-opted into the existing order by being allowed to hold high office. William IV would not be a well-remembered king and he only reigned for about seven years but he did at least force through the second set of necessary reforms the reform act of 1832 and the catholic emancipation act were both highly divisive and they were both forced through before victoria became queen she had dodged those bullets and would benefit from them. The Kensington system had kept her away from the monarch and senior politicians. Victoria had been visible to her future subjects only as a quiet, graceful, morally upright girl who was seen on walks in Kensington Park or during the carriage tours of the country. She seemed like the promised breath of fresh air. The Whigs claimed the reform bill as their triumph and it was a major milestone in British politics. It changed the political landscape that the Victorians would operate in. It would be the basis of much of the reform movement, women's rights movements, and much else, even if only symbolically, which is why we have covered it here. With Victoria aligned to the Whigs, she was unknowingly curtailing the power of the monarchy, since the Whigs, were by definition inclined to parliamentary democracy and a more constitutionally curtailed monarchy. But since they were more open to rich newcomers than the Tories, it is likely that Conway and the Duchess of Kent felt that they could expect more support, since they were in many ways outsiders to whom the Tories wouldn't give a warm welcome anyway. This was still a highly stratified society, with the people at the very top desperately resistant to change. Even as late as 1839, conservative views about the reform were expressed in some very surprising places. Sir Charles Napier mentions in his History of the War in Syria that he was talking to the vizier about British military support. The vizier inquired why an English army could not be spared to attack Alexandria. To this I replied, we already had too much on our hands. What with the troubles in Canada, the war in India, the prospect of an outbreak in China, and the Chartists at home. It was impossible to spare the troops, and I was sure that Parliament would not grant supplies for such an expedition." I find it interesting the Chartists are mentioned as needing military commitments since they were social reformers but to Sir Charles they were mentioned as if they were any other military opponent. Attitudes against reform were clearly stubborn even if the excuse itself was probably purely diplomatic but whether they liked it or not change was coming not just because of politics but because in Britain, one of the greatest inventions in human history was about to shatter the old world order as effectively as any army or plague. But unlike war and disease, this change was welcomed with open arms across Britain. Of course, there were winners and losers, but ultimately, everything from food to work to industry to the army to the social structure Was going to be upended. Next time. We will cover Victoria's final crisis. And her triumphant. Ascendance to the throne. It's been a long time coming. But I'm looking forward to it. Then we will have. What I'm loosely calling. The quake series of themes. These focus on events. Technologies and people. That change the world. Indeed I call one of them. A world quake because the event was so fundamentally important that the way humanity viewed themselves and the world would be changed forever, and it would rock the Victorians to their core. Now, just before we go, I'd like to thank the patrons for their support. Ho Ho Toffs, Michelle Gersick, Michelle Packham, Rob Coughlin, Steve Doc Pinko Clouter, our respectable governesses, Jeffrey Rubinoff, Sean Warswick and Amy Caldrell and of course the mysterious Erpso, who I can now reveal is actually the delightful Michael Rockwell. Also thank you, Daniel Nikos, and welcome to our two new respectable governesses, Bright Knight and Roberta Downey. Thank you so much for your support. And our lovable chimney sweeps are Joseph Kapperman, JB Unicorn and ephemeral von hinterland hope you enjoyed today see you soon thank you for listening today i hope you enjoyed the show if you want to give me some feedback or just have a chat or ask any questions you can email me at age of victoria podcast at gmail.com or on facebook on the facebook page or in the group just search for age of victoria if you want more of an informal social chat or a bit of banter, follow me on Twitter at Age of Victoria. Take care and bye for now.